This is an audio recording of the introductory essay to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by J.I. Packer, permission granted by Banner of Truth Trust. But wait a minute, says someone. It's all very well to talk like this about the gospel, but surely what Owen is doing is defending limited atonement, one of the five points of Calvinism. When you speak of recovering the gospel, don't you mean that you just want us all to become Calvinists? These questions are worth considering, for they will no doubt occur to many. At the same time, however, there are questions that reflect a great deal of prejudice and ignorance. Defending limited atonement? As if this was all that a Reformed theologian expounding the heart of the gospel could ever really want to do. You just want us all to become Calvinists. As if Reformed theologians had no interest beyond recruiting for their party, and as if becoming a Calvinist was the last stage of theological depravity. It had nothing to do with the gospel at all. Before we answer these questions directly, we must try to remove the prejudices which underlie them by making clear what Calvinism really is. And therefore, we would ask the reader to take note of the following facts, historical and theological, about Calvinism in general, and the five points in particular. First, it should be observed that the five points of Calvinism, so-called, are simply the Calvinistic answer to a five-point manifesto, the Remonstrant, put out by certain Belgic semi-Pelagians in the early 17th century. The theology which it contained, known to history as Arminianism, stemmed from two philosophical principles. First, that divine sovereignty is not compatible with human freedom, nor therefore with human responsibility. Second, that ability limits obligation. The charge of semi-Pelagianism was thus fully justified. From these principles, the Arminians drew two deductions. First, that since the Bible regards faith as a free and responsible human act, it cannot be caused by God, but is exercised independently of Him. Second, that since the Bible regards faith as obligatory on the part of all who hear the gospel, ability to believe must be universal. Hence, they maintain, Scripture must be interpreted as teaching the following positions. First, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Nor second, is he ever so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. Third, God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by his foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. Fourth, Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith to anyone. There is no such gift. What it did was rather to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. Fifth, it rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail here fall away and are lost. Thus, Arminianism made man's salvation depend ultimately on man himself saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work, and because his own, not God's, in him. The Synod of Dort was convened in 1618 to pronounce on this theology, and the five points of Calvinism represent its counter-affirmations. They stem from a very different principle, biblical principle that salvation is of the Lord. And they may be summarized thus. First, fallen man in his natural state lacks all power to believe the gospel just as he lacks all power to believe the law, despite all external inducements that may be extended to him. Second, 
God's election is a free, sovereign, unconditional choice of sinners as sinners to be redeemed by Christ, given faith, and brought to glory. Third, the redeeming work of Christ had as its end and goal the salvation of the elect. Fourth, the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing men to faith never fails to achieve its object. Fifth, believers are kept in faith and grace by the unconquerable power of God till they come to glory. These five points are conveniently denoted by the mnemonic TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, preservation of the saints. Now here are two coherent interpretations of the biblical gospel which stand in evident opposition to each other. The difference between them is not primarily one of emphasis, but of content. One proclaims a God who saves. The other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One view presents the three great acts of the Holy Trinity for the recovering of lost mankind, election by the Father, redemption by the Son, calling by the Spirit, as directed toward the same persons, and as securing their salvation infallibly. The other view gives each act a different reference, the objects of redemption being all mankind, of calling, those who hear the gospel, and of election, those hearers who respond, and denies that any man's salvation is secured by any of them. The two theologies thus conceive the plan of salvation in quite different terms. One makes salvation depend on the work of God, the other on a work of man. One regards faith as part of God's gift of salvation, the other as man's own contribution to salvation. One gives all the glory of saving believers to God. The other divides the praise between God, who, so to speak, built the machinery of salvation, and man, who by believing operated it. Plainly, these differences are important, and the permanent value of the five points is a summary of Calvinism, is that they make clear the points at which, and the extent to which, these two conceptions are at variance. However, it would not be correct simply to equate Calvinism with the five points. Five points of our own will make this clear. In the first place, Calvinism is something much broader than the five points indicate. Calvinism is a whole world view, stemming from a clear vision of God as the whole world's maker and king. Calvinism is the consistent endeavor to acknowledge the Creator as the Lord, working all things after the counsel of His will. Calvinism is a theocentric way of thinking about all life under the direction and control of God's own word. Calvinism, in other words, is the theology of the Bible viewed from the perspective of the Bible, the God-centered outlook which sees the Creator as the source and means and end of everything that is, both in nature and in grace. Calvinism is thus theism, belief in God as the ground of all things, religion, dependence on God as the giver of all things, and evangelicalism, trusting God through Christ for all things, all in their purest and most highly developed form. And Calvinism is a unified philosophy of history which sees the whole diversity of processes and events that take place in God's world as no more and no less than the outworking of His great preordained plan for His creatures and His church. The five points assert no more and that God is sovereign in saving the individual, but Calvinism as such is concerned with the much broader assertion that He is sovereign everywhere. 
Then, in the second place, the five points present Calvinistic soteriology in a negative and polemical form, whereas Calvinism in itself is essentially expository, pastoral, and constructive. It can define its position in terms of Scripture without any reference to Arminianism, and it does not need to be forever fighting real or imaginary Arminians in order to keep itself alive. Calvinism has no interest in negatives as such. When Calvinists fight, they fight for positive evangelical values. The negative cast of the five points is misleading, chiefly with regard to the third limited atonement, or particular redemption, which is often read with stress on the adjective and taken as indicating that Calvinists have a special interest in confining the limits of divine mercy. But in fact, the purpose of this phraseology, as we shall see, is to safeguard the central affirmation of the gospel, that Christ is a redeemer who really does redeem. Similarly, the denials of an election that is conditional and of grace that is resistible are intended to safeguard the positive truth that it is God who saves. The real negations are those of Arminianism, which denies that election, redemption, and calling are saving acts of God. Calvinism negates these negations in order to assert the positive content of the gospel for the positive purpose of strengthening faith and building up the church. Thirdly, the very act of setting out Calvinistic soteriology in the form of five distinct points, a number due, as we saw, merely to the fact that there were five Arminian points for the Synod of Dort to answer, tends to obscure the organic character of Calvinistic thought on this subject. For the five points, though separately stated, are really inseparable. They hang together. You cannot reject one without rejecting them all, at least in the sense in which the Synod meant them. For to Calvinism, there is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology, the point that God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of Father and Son by renewing, saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory, plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will, or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners, and the force of this confession may not be weakened by disrupting the unity of the work of the Trinity, or by dividing the achievement of salvation between God and man, and making the decisive part man's own, or by soft-peddling the sinner's inability so as to allow him to share the praise of his salvation with his Savior. This is the one point of Calvinistic soteriology which the five points are concerned to establish in Arminianism in all its forms to deny, namely, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen. This leads to our fourth remark, which is this. The five-point formula obscures the depth of the difference between Calvinistic and Arminian soteriology. There seems no doubt that it seriously misleads many here. 
In the formula, the stress falls on the adjectives, and this naturally gives the impression that in regard to the three great saving acts of God, the debate concerns the adjectives merely. That both sides agree as to what election, redemption, and the gift of internal grace are, and differ only as to the position of man in relation to them, whether the first is conditional upon faith being foreseen or not, whether the second intends the salvation of every man or not, whether the third always proves invincible or not. But this is a complete misconception. The change of adjective in each case involves changing the meaning of the noun. An election that is conditional, a redemption that is universal, an internal grace that is resistible is not the same kind of election, redemption, internal grace as Calvinism asserts. The real issue concerns not the appropriateness of adjectives, but the definition of nouns. Both sides saw this clearly when the controversy first began, and it is important that we should see it too, for otherwise we cannot discuss the Calvinist Arminian debate to any purpose at all. It is worth setting out the different definitions side by side. First, God's act of election was defined by the Arminians as a resolve to receive to sonship and glory a duly qualified class of people, believers in Christ. This becomes a resolve to receive individual persons only in virtue of God's foreseeing the contingent fact that they will of their own accord believe. There is nothing in the decree of election to ensure that the class of believers will ever have any members. God does not determine to make any man believe. But Calvinists define election as a choice of particular, undeserving persons to be saved from sin and brought to glory, and to that end to be redeemed by the death of Christ and given faith by the Spirit's effectual calling. Where the Arminian says, I owe my election to my faith, the Calvinist says, I owe my faith to my election. Clearly, these two concepts of election are very far apart. Second, Christ's work of redemption was defined by the Arminians as the removing of an obstacle, the unsatisfied claims of justice, which stood in the way of God's offering pardon to sinners, as he desired to do on condition that they believed. Redemption, according to Arminianism, secured for God a right to make this offer, but did not of itself ensure that anyone would ever accept it, for faith, being a work of man's own, is not a gift that comes to him from Calvary. Christ's death created an opportunity for the exercise of saving faith, but that is all it did. Calvinists, however, define redemption as Christ's actual substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners through which God was reconciled to them. Their liability to punishment was forever destroyed, and a title to eternal life was secured for them. In consequence of this, they now have in God's sight a right to the gift of faith as the means of entry into the enjoyment of their inheritance. Calvary, in other words, not merely made possible the salvation of those for whom Christ died. It ensured that they would be brought to faith in their salvation made actual. The cross saves, for the Arminian will only say, I could not have gained my salvation without Calvary. The Calvinist will say, Christ gained my salvation for me at Calvary. The former makes the cross the sin qua non of salvation. The latter sees it as the actual procuring cause of salvation, and traces the source of every spiritual blessing, faith included, back to the great transaction between God and His Son, 
carried through on Calvary's hill. Clearly, these two concepts of redemption are quite at variance. Third, the Spirit's gift of internal grace was defined by the Arminians as moral suation, the bare bestowal of an understanding of God's truth. This they granted, indeed insisted, does not of itself ensure that anyone will ever make the response of faith. But Calvinists define this gift as not merely an enlightening, but also a regenerating work of God in men, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Fourth, grace proves irresistible just because it destroys the disposition to resist. For the Arminian, therefore, will be content to say, I decided for Christ. I made up my mind to be a Christian. The Calvinist will wish to speak of his conversion in more theological fashion, to make plain whose work it really was. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Clearly, these two notions of internal grace are sharply opposed to each other. Now, the Calvinist contends that the Arminian idea of election, redemption and calling as acts of God, which do not save, cuts at the very heart of their biblical meaning. That is to say, in the Arminian sense that God elects believers, and Christ died for all men, and the Spirit quickens those who receive the word, is really to say that in the biblical sense God elects nobody, and Christ died for nobody, and the Spirit quickens nobody. The matter at issue in this controversy, therefore, is the meaning to be given to these biblical terms, and to some others which are also soteriologically significant, such as the love of God, the covenant of grace, and the verb save itself with its synonyms. Arminians gloss them all in terms of the principle that salvation does not directly depend on any decree or act of God, but on man's independent activity in believing. Calvinists maintain that this principle is itself unscriptural and irreligious, and that such glossing demonstrably perverts the sense of Scripture and undermines the gospel at every point where it is practiced. This, and nothing less than this, is what the Arminian controversy is about. There is a fifth way in which the five-point formula is deficient. Its very form, a series of denials of Arminian assertions, lends color to the impression that Calvinism is a modification of Arminianism, that Arminianism has a certain primacy and order of nature, and developed Calvinism is an offshoot from it. Even when one shows this to be false as a matter of history, the suspicion remains in many minds that it is a true account of the relation of the two views themselves. For it is widely supposed that Arminianism, which, as we now see, corresponds pretty closely to the new gospel of our own day, is the result of reading the scriptures in a natural, unbiased, unsophisticated way, and that Calvinism is an unnatural growth, the product less of the texts themselves than of unhallowed logic working on the text, resting their plain sense, and upsetting their balance by forcing them into a systematic framework which they do not themselves provide. 
Whatever may have been true of individual Calvinists, as a generalization about Calvinism, nothing could be further from the truth than this. Certainly Arminianism is natural in one sense, and that it represents a characteristic perversion of biblical teaching by the fallen mind of man, who even in salvation cannot bear to renounce the delusion of being master of his fate and captain of his soul. This perversion appeared before in the Pelagianism and Semi-Pelagianism of the Patristic period and the later Scholasticism, and has recurred since the 17th century both in Roman theology and among Protestants in various types of rationalistic liberalism and modern evangelical teaching, and no doubt it will always be with us. As long as the fallen human mind is what it is, the Arminian way of thinking will continue to be a natural type of mistake. But it is not natural in any other sense. In fact, it is Calvinism that understands the scriptures in their natural, one would have thought, inescapable meaning. Calvinism that keeps to what they actually say. Calvinism that insists on taking seriously the biblical assertions that God saves, and that he saves those whom he has chosen to save and that he saves them by grace without works, so that no man may boast, and that Christ is given to them as a perfect Savior, and that their whole salvation flows to them from the cross, and that the work of redeeming them was finished on the cross. It is Calvinism that gives due honor to the cross. When the Calvinist sings, There is a green hill far away, without a city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. He means it. He would not gloss the italicized statements by saying that God's saving purpose in the death of his son was a mere ineffectual wish, depending for its fulfillment on man's willingness to believe, so that for all God could do, Christ might have died and none been saved at all. He insists that the Bible sees the cross as revealing God's power to save, not his impotence. Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. A mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for his own chosen people. His precious blood really does save us all. The intended effects of his self-offering do in fact follow just because the cross was what it was. Its saving power does not depend on faith being added to it. Its saving power is such that faith flows from it. The cross secured the full salvation of all for whom Christ died. God forbid, therefore, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the real nature of Calvinistic soteriology becomes plain. It is no artificial oddity, nor a product of overbold logic. Its central confession that God saved sinners, that Christ redeemed us by his blood, is the witness both of the Bible and of the believing heart. The Calvinist is the Christian who confesses before men in his theology just what he believes in his heart before God when he prays. He thanks and speaks at all times of the sovereign grace of God in the way that every Christian does when he pleads for the souls of others or when he obeys the impulse of worship which rises unbidden within him, prompting him to deny himself all praise and to give all the glory of his salvation to his Savior. Calvinism is the natural theology written on the heart of the new man in Christ, 
whereas Arminianism is an intellectual sin of infirmity, natural only in the sense in which all such sins are natural, even to the regenerate. Calvinistic thinking is the Christian being himself on the intellectual level. Arminian thinking is the Christian failing to be himself through the weakness of the flesh. Calvinism is what the Christian church has always held and taught when its mind has not been distracted by controversy and false traditions from attending to what Scripture actually says. That is the significance of the patristic testimonies to the teaching of the five points which can be quoted in abundance. Owen appends a few on redemption. A much larger collection may be seen in John Gill's The Cause of God in Truth. So that really it is most misleading to call the soteriology Calvinism at all. For it is not a peculiarity of John Calvin and the divines of Dort, but a part of the revealed truth of God in the Catholic Christian faith. Calvinism is one of the odious names by which, down the centuries, prejudice has been raised against it. But the thing itself is just the biblical gospel.